0: I invite you to open them up with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We are um, steadily on our way through the gospel of Mark. We are coming ever so closely to the middle of the book, which is chapter 8, and and this great declaration of Peter saying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, which is the, the pinnacle, the confession that we make as Christians. And we're slowly inching our way through there in the first part of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Jesus is being shown to be the great master of the universe who has uh, power and authority over all things. The last half of Mark leads us to his death. And uh, so we are still in uh, the, the area here where we see Jesus in his glory through his power and his authority. And we're going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. A short, uh, short little passage, but uh, it is certainly packed with a good punch of what it means to, to follow Christ. And so, if you have your uh, Bibles open to Mark chapter six, verse one, it will be on the screen there behind me. But this is what the, uh, the well, this is what Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who had heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he was amazed at their unbelief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us today to not amaze Jesus by our unbelief, but Lord, would we see him with fresh eyes today? Would Jesus not be ordinary? Would he not be typical in our sight? And it's in His matchless name that we ask this. Amen. You know, it's easier than ever these days to, to watch and re-watch and maybe watch for the first time some of your uh, favorite shows, movies, or documentaries with uh, uh, different streaming services. Now, we can no longer say that there's nothing on TV. Um, you know, with thousands of options on Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime, and, and that's just a few of the streaming services, there's, there's not a lack of anything by which uh, we can be entertained by. But there stands one show that, above and beyond all the rest on any streaming network, that is streamed the most. Does anybody know what it is? It's The Office. It's this, uh, this show that if you've never seen The Office or maybe you've never heard about The Office, it, it's one of the biggest television shows out there. It's not running anymore on NBC, but it is the most streamed uh, show on, on Netflix. It's a situational comedy that is meant to be like an, on, uh, like an ongoing documentary of the life of an office of a regional paper company in Scranton, Pennsylvania, called Dunder Mifflin, and uh, at Dunder Mifflin, there is no uh, employee that uh, that lacks um, quirks in their personality. Uh, we would say you have Dwight Schrute, who is sort of the cunning, overambitious uh, guy who has Amish roots, but he's sort of rude and going about things, and you have um, uh, Angela Martin, who is this overly critical cat lady. Um, You have um, someone like uh, uh, Andy Bernard, who is this a cappella singing Cornell fanatic, or Stanley Hudson, who never seems to actually get any work done. All he does is crossword puzzles all day. And there are so many outlandish characters on The Office that um, there, there are ample opportunities that if you've ever worked in an office before, to draw parallels uh, between some of these characters. But perhaps the two most famous characters of the show would be Michael Scott, who is the regional manager of Dunder Mifflin in Scranton, and Jim Halpert, who is known as the office prankster. Now, Michael Scott is this quintessential, uh, ignorant, selfish, and, you know, quite seriously, he's an offensive boss. And uh, this guy Jim, yes, he is the office prankster, but he is known for being a hard worker and generally a, a, a pretty good guy. And as the years go by, it is easy to tell that, that Michael Scott's leadership is not really making the cut. And so the corporate office wants to try to shake things up, and they see that, that Jim Halpert has been gaining some leadership skills, and so they want to make a co-manager position where Michael Scott would take uh, some things to the office as manager, and Jim would take some parts as being uh, the co-manager. And this quickly becomes a problem because the people that work in the office now, that Jim is now managing and that he is now leading, uh, they've worked side-by-side side with him for years. They've seen him, uh, they've known him ever since he got out of college and took this job at the, at the office. They saw him only as the office prankster and as a salesman. And because of this, they could not take his leadership seriously. Any decision that he uh, would make was second-guessed and criticized. Uh, they questioned his authority to exert power uh, and, and policies in the office. And it appears that uh, his history in the office had actually become a hindrance to his leadership and the progress of the office making uh, making uh, money and, um, and helping their shareholders. To the people in the office, Jim was simply too ordinary. They knew him too well. And we've been making our way through Mark now for quite a while, off and on, and up to this point, Jesus has shown himself to be the authoritative Lord of life. He has healed the sick. He has exercised demons. He has calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee with just his voice. He even raised a girl from the dead. And all of these things were shown in order to prove Jesus' power in order to prove His authority so that people might believe in Him, that people might trust in Him. And all this happened outside of His hometown of Nazareth. Now, in chapter 6, Jesus returns home, and it is there that Jesus comes down with the Jim Halpert syndrome. He is very familiar to them. Though they recognize him uh, and his roots as a laborer, maybe a a guy who worked uh, side by side with his father learning the trade, they cannot understand or believe how it is that this guy learned to be such a good orator, such a good teacher. And his power and his authority are then, well, they're questioned. And in their minds, all they see Jesus as is this little boy that they remember from years ago. Jesus is simply too ordinary for them to have authority. And because of their hardness of heart to believe that this Jesus, whom they've known since he was a, a, probably a toddler for over 30 years, they couldn't believe that he was the Lord of life. And he wasn't willing and able to do what he normally did—heal sick, to exorcise demons, to prove who he was. There's an old saying that says that familiarity breeds contempt. It was true of Jim Halpert at Dunder Mifflin, and it was true here of Jesus in his hometown. And unless we are careful, we uh, our familiarity with Jesus can also breed contempt of him in our hearts. So I have one point and one point only this morning, and that is that we need to beware of seeing Jesus as ordinary. Beware of seeing Jesus as ordinary. You know, Jesus here had uh, just experienced an intense number of days in, in ministry. Uh, it began that he, he was teaching crowds and parables, and That night, uh, as I said earlier, he was awoken to a storm on the Sea of Galilee in which he got up and calmed it with a word. When they came to the other side of of the Sea of Galilee, they met up with a guy who was demon-possessed, who was so powerful and so violent that he was uh, chained up by the locals and and the chains couldn't even hold him. He would break the chains and... and, uh, It was just not a good situation. And after uh, a bit of back-and-forth war of words, Jesus ends up sending the demons that are in this guy into a herd of pigs, and these pigs then subsequently jump off a cliff and, uh, and essentially commit suicide. That doesn't please the people of the town and country, since the pigs were a great source of profit. And they were, quite frankly, terrified of this guy who can change someone in such a way. So they asked Jesus to get out of their area. And last week we read how he came to the other side of the shore, and he was immediately mobbed by a group of people. One person in particular was a a father who had a daughter that was dying, and he asked Jesus for help. And on the other hand, a, a lady who had had a medical condition for 12 years wanted Jesus to come and help her. He healed the woman, raised the dead girl to life, and it was there that he finally saw people believing in him. Now, you would imagine after a few days of intense ministry that one would want a little bit of rest, a little bit of a respite, and that's exactly uh, where he would go then would be to his hometown, It's the best place to go for a rest, and that's what Jesus does. Look in verse 1. It says that he left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, Nazareth was a very small town. It was about 25 miles um, southwest um, of Capernaum, where Jesus would spend most of his time. It was such a small and obscure town that you may never find it referenced anywhere other than the Bible in secular sources. It, uh, it was such a small town uh, that it only sat on about 60 acres and only housed less than 500 people around the time of Jesus. It was known as a rowdy town. It was a brawling town. Uh, this was uh, sort of like one of those small towns that you might drive through uh, in Minnesota or really anywhere where uh, you see a sign for the population, and it's pretty small, and all you see on the main drag is, is uh, maybe a bar and, uh, and, a, and a garage for fixing cars, and that's it. It's not a place that you would find on a map very much. That's what Nazareth was like. And Jesus returns with His crew, and He stays at least through the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of worship in which all things would be put on hold. All work, uh, anything that required any labor would have to be put on hold. It was a day for the Jews to simply devote to, to worshiping God. And on the Sabbath evening, the whole town would come into the synagogue, and uh, they would come for a corporate time of worship and for teaching. There was absolutely nothing uh, unusual or out of the ordinary about this particular Sabbath day. It was customary that people who were considered rabbis to provide uh, the teaching, to provide the preaching for that day. Uh, It could have been a local rabbi or it could have been an itinerant preacher that happened to be in the area, but for the people of Nazareth this day, it was a special day because they had one of their own. They had Jesus who was going to come and provide the teaching. Now, this would not have been a negative thing at this point. People would have loved to have known that here's this little Jesus that we, uh, that we saw grow up, and he's going to preach. You know, I am not originally from Mora, but here at Emmanuel, we have had the opportunity to have some people that have uh, been raised up in Emmanuel or have some very close ties to Emmanuel come and bring us the Word of God. I can think of Marcus Barius, who's come up here a number of times and and preached. And some of you remember him growing up in the youth group, and that's a really exciting thing to see God working through them. Jesse Dowdy has been up here, and yes, he's not from Mora, but his wife grew up in this church does an excellent job, and we give God praise for him. You know, we're so fortunate to have Pastor Dave here, who grew up at Emmanuel. Some of you probably even remember when he was born. He is a local guy, and that is fabulous. But whereas here I believe that the church of Emmanuel is very kind and very affirming of God's work in these men's lives... For Jesus, they are absolutely okay with him preaching and bringing the word as long as he stays in his own lane. There is no record here of what Jesus preached. Man, I would have loved to have heard what Jesus had said in this sermon. It it perhaps is the same passage from Isaiah that, that Luke records. Uh, It's hard to say, but my guess is that Jesus didn't come to Nazareth and say, well, what kind of community issues were these people facing, and and how can I bring them a word of encouragement on these these community issues and do a topical sermon for them? More than likely, Jesus was pointing these people to faith in himself. Imagine if a young guy grew up in this church, went to college, went to seminary, And then He came to do a a guest sermon or maybe a series of lectures or whatever, and He came up to the pulpit and said, "'I am the way, the truth, and the life. None of you can come to the Father except through Me. Come to Me, and I will give you rest.'" Why don't you tear this building down and in three days I will raise it back up again? I think at the very least, it's reasonable to think one of two things. One, this guy's not mentally stable. Or two, who does this guy think he is? We used to change his diapers. And now he comes, and he's going to tell me what's wrong with my life, what is wrong with my heart, and what I need to fix? And that's exactly what happens here. Look in the last part of verse 2. Many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things from, they said? What wisdom that has been given to him, and, and, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Now, understand now that this amazement is not positive at all. It's one thing to say, whoa, that is really great teaching. I'm learning a lot. I'm going to grow through this. It's one thing to say that, and it's another thing altogether to say, "In the world did he get all these things from? Who put these ideas into his head? So, you can just feel the condescension that comes from these words here. They don't even refer to him by name. Do you notice that? Who is this guy? Who is this man that thinks that he can say this and do this? This clearly is not the same guy that came, that left here a few years ago, and then they start really cutting him down to size. Look in verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? So even though this is a blue-collar community and and labor work would have been sort of the trade uh, in this town, uh, this is not an endearing term. This guy isn't some guru. He's just a laborer, just like the rest of us. There's nothing special about him. What in the world is he doing? They go on to say, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and Aren't his sisters among us? Now, it's interesting here that they call him the son of Mary and not the son of Joseph. More than likely, Joseph had passed away by this time. But it was customary for Jewish men to be labeled uh, as descendants of their father. So even if Jesus, uh, even if Joseph had died already, it still would have uh, been assumed that they would call Jesus the son of Joseph but they don't do it here. They call Him the Son of Mary. And so whoever uh, calls Him this is trying to discredit Jesus. In calling Him the Son of Mary, what they're trying to remind each other is their perception that Jesus was an illegitimate child. So who is this guy, this, this carpenter, this this illegitimate child who was, who was conceived out of wedlock and connecting them to his brothers and sisters. Uh, parenthetical statement here, yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Mary and Joseph had a normal marriage and relations that go with that. they were simply pointing to Jesus' ordinariness. Verse 3, ends by saying So they were offended by him. Now the Greek word that that's used here for offended by him is an interesting word. It's the word scandalon, which is You know, obviously the word that we get scandal from. So these people here were essentially scandalized by Jesus' power and His authority because of their familiarity with Him. His ordinariness wouldn't allow them to see Him as He truly is, the Lord. Verses 5 and 6 tell us, because of that, He was not able to do a miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. If we're not careful, Jesus will also marvel at our unbelief. For the same reasons. You know, we may not think of Jesus as this hometown boy who can't stay in his lane, but what we can and often do is reduce Jesus to less than he actually is. You know, theologians like to use really big words, and and they're, they're helpful words as long as they are defined and they, they help make precision on how we think about Jesus. And um, uh, one of those words and two of those words actually help us understand the nature of relating to Jesus. And to have one without the other would have an unbalanced understanding of Him, and it has great potential for either making our hearts callous toward Him or weak and apathetic towards towards Him. In one regard… Jesus is very, uh, the word we use is transcendent. He's very different than us. There are things about his nature that we will never share. His deity, his being God, he can do amazing things. He can heal the sick, he can exercise demons. He can control the weather patterns. He can raise people from the dead. There is something so otherworldly about Jesus that makes Him utterly different than us. On the other hand, Jesus is what we call very imminent. He is very near to us. And He is like us in every way. He shares in our human nature. He understands our weaknesses and our temptations. He hungered. He he felt hunger. He thirsted. He felt sorrow. He felt pain. He was one of us. Now, if you see Him just as transcendent and as totally and, and utterly unlike us, you run the risk of feeling like you can't relate to God and that He couldn't possibly care about you because He is so much bigger and so much greater than any of us. But if you see Him only as imminent, then you run the risk of seeing Him as nothing but ordinary. He's just one of us. Jesus is just an average Joe. If if he's simply shared in our nature and understands what we go through without seeing his immensity, then what right does Jesus have to speak into our lives? What authority does Jesus have then to judge me and my sin? What prerogative has He been given to tell me to repent and follow Him? We're perfectly happy with Jesus being our friend. But when He then begins to make demands on our affections and our priorities and our bank accounts and our time… And, he quick, and then we quickly become like the Nazarenes in that synagogue. Where does this man get these things from? What wisdom does he think that he has? I am the master of my domain. Now, we may not take such a serious tone consciously, But we must examine to see whether the root is beginning to rot in our love for Jesus. When we reduce Jesus' transcendence and, and settle simply for His imminence, it is far too easy to begin losing the prominence that He rightfully has in our lives. Let me make this more plain. Is it possible that you have become apathetic to Jesus? Is it possible that Jesus and faith in Him have become so comfortable, so ordinary, that you've lost your passion for Him? David Garland, in his commentary, has a good observation. This is what he writes. This passage applies to the contemporary phenomenon where people raised as Christians search for answers to life's questions by turning to other religions. One can only wonder why many Christians turn to something other than the faith of their youth for help in their lives or for meaning. Does familiarity with the stories about Jesus breed contempt? Has his story become humdrum? Have we lost our sense of awe? Does our fascination with the unfamiliar and the exotic lead us to look for truth in what is new and different? We must guard against the the attitudes that beset the synagogue of Nazareth, which is this. I already know Him from the Bible stories of my youth. What more can He teach me now? Let me ask you this again. Is it possible that you become apathetic toward Jesus? Maybe a few questions maybe might help diagnose this. First, do you have the same zeal, excitement, and love for the gospel that you did when you first became a Christian. Now, bear in mind that maturity in Christ can hone in that passion and focus it. So, I want to distinguish the the, the differences there. The question is, do you still burn with passion for Him? Question two, is the idea of Jesus boring or prudish to you? Do you have things that are better uses of your time? Third, do you delight in God's Word, the Bible? Or is it a chore or worse, a relic with dust on it in your house? Number four, if, you were, if someone were to examine your life outside of this service, would they see that your life belongs to Christ or would it be uh, indistinguishable from the life of an unbeliever? Far too many of us this morning find ourselves not sitting in a church in mora minnesota but rather we we are sitting in a synagogue in nazareth wondering who this man thinks he is in revelation chapter 2 jesus through the apostle john writes this to the church at ephesus "'Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, "'Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand "'and who walks among the seven golden lampstands.'" It's referring to Jesus here. "'I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, "'and that you cannot tolerate evil people. "'You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, "'and you have found them to be liars.'" I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. This is great stuff that he's saying about the church at Ephesus. We we want to be marked by things like this. And he goes on to say, but I have this against you. Those are words I don't ever want Jesus to say to me. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Is it possible that we have fallen from loving Jesus? Is it possible that Jesus would look on us in our lives like he does in verse 6? He's amazed at our unbelief. But there's good news embedded for us in this story. Uh, not just good news, but I would say great news. However, it might sound uh, sort of uh, of a counterintuitive paradox, but the fact that Jesus is rejected by these uh, by these people who you would expect would be the very ones in which ought to believe in Him, His family, His his hometown. That rejection is good news for us. These six verses are not just meant for us to uh, walk away here today with a pithy statement that prophets are not welcome in their hometown. These six verses are giving us a foretaste of what is to come in the life of Jesus. They're pointing to the fact that Jesus would be rejected by people so that you and I can be accepted by God. They look forward to a time when not only would his his family and his hometown reject him, but the entire uh, community of Israel, the religious leaders, even his disciples, And even on the cross, when Jesus quotes Psalm 22 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was utterly rejected by everyone and everything that he knew. When Jesus was rejected, put on public trial, and executed on the cross, it wasn't for any crime that he had committed, but for ours. See, God the Father used the civil justice system to execute justice, one man for the sins of all. Even the sins of apathy and seeing, uh, and seeing Jesus as ordinary were taken care of for us on the cross. And because Jesus took the punishment that we deserved, his rejection gives us acceptance in God's eyes. And this is all given to us by God's grace through faith in Jesus. So, how then do we take the first steps of faith? How do we get over our, our apathy, over seeing Jesus as ordinary? Well, it's not taking the typical. American way, which is just to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, fake it till you make it. Rather, it is to acknowledge and to realize your lack of love and your lack of faith toward Jesus. It is to admit that Jesus has become ordinary to you, and just like with every other sin, Uh, that we are beset with. We don't just try to do better next time. It will never work if you just say, I'm just going to try to do better next time. All we can do is cling to Jesus. He is not just our buddy who can comfort us when we're down, But He is the Lord of the universe who can forgive us of our sins, who can restore us through His life, through His rejection, through His death, and His resurrection on our behalf. He has the power to turn our weak hearts and give them renewal to chase after Him with all of our gusto. His Spirit was given to us so that we can find new mercies in Him every day. You know, since I became a pastor 10 years ago, I've recognized uh, a subtle flaw that I, that I have among many. When I am weak or unknowledgeable or inexperienced in uh, a certain area, uh, I I tend to turn to books, which is not bad. It's good to gain knowledge. It's good to research. It's good to know those types of things. But where I tend to veer off a lot is that I will study a subject and I'll feel like I know it, but I get so engrossed in knowing the subject that I forget to actually experience it. I forget to actually go through with it. If you want to reconnect with someone or if you want to get to know someone better, the best way is not to go onto Facebook and creep their profile. In fact, that's kind of creepy. I hope you know that. But the best way is to spend time with them. It is to get to know them. And the same is true with Jesus. If you were apathetic or find him as ordinary, don't just memorize the finer points of theology. Don't just re- read what other people have said about him. It's amazing how how many of us live vicariously through the faith of other people. We need to know him ourselves. Go to him. Spend time in his word, in prayer and just simply obeying his, his word. You know, the staff on the, on the show, The Office, may well have rejected Jim Halpert uh, and his leadership because they knew him too well. How could he be a good boss when all they see is him as the office prankster? To Jesus' family and neighborhood uh, growing up, how could they see him as anything But the little kid they used to see running around the streets when he was growing up. But how can we, who have experienced the power and authority of Jesus in our lives, that we have seen our lives change, that we've seen Jesus at work in our lives, how can we look at him as anything but ordinary? Return then to the passion that you once had when you first came to him. Come back to that zeal. Jesus is more than ordinary. He can captivate your heart again. Come back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we acknowledge to you this morning, Lord, that, Lord, we have, we have been weak. We have not given you the honor that is due to you. Lord, we know that you want to be the Lord of our lives, but we have freely put other things on the throne of our lives. And so, Father, I pray that you would now uh, put your Son rightfully on the throne of our hearts and that as he does, uh, as he ascends to that throne, God, that we would have a passion ignited in us for Jesus, that we would love him more than we've ever loved him, that we would continue to grow in faith and love and good works in his name, Lord. For any of us and all of us, Lord, that may be feeling weak-hearted this morning, Lord, your word tells us that you strengthen our hearts. You, uh, you will raise our hearts up to love you and live for you. So, Father, I pray that you would do that. And if there's anyone here today, God, who has never had a passion and never had a zeal for you, God, I pray that you would light a fire under them today, Lord, that they wouldn't go home, and that they would not be able to rest until they come to faith in you, Lord Jesus. We want to see you do that miracle today. Lord, would you do that? Would you uh, receive us as we come back to you? And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Would you stand with us as the worship team comes forward?